This quarter, we're reading the parables of Jesus. If you haven't been here, these are stories that Jesus told to provoke us, uh, to kind of get into the way we think about the world, the way we think about God, the way we think about ourselves, and kind of blow up the caricatures that we tend to have of all those things, the world, ourselves, sin, God, what He thinks, what our, what's our responsibility, what is humanity, all that kind of stuff. We're going to read a parable from Luke 19 tonight that's really interesting. It's the last parable that Jesus tells. Uh, if you know the Gospel of Luke, 9 through 19 are him uh, is a travel narrative of him walking to Jerusalem with just kind of a band of people that are slowly kind of gathering around him. And he's telling the bulk of his parables in Luke during those chapters. And this is the last one. And you'll, you'll pick up in the introduction kind of what these, or the first verse, what these people are wondering about. And what they're doing is, imagine who the people are, the kind of people that would follow a wandering teacher. And uh, in college, and well, and still today, my favorite band is a band, a jam band named Fish, which you don't have to be familiar with to get this illustration. But what people would do with Fish is they, they kind of had this fanatical fan base where people would take like three months off or six months off or a year off and just go wherever Fish went. Are you all familiar with this kind of band-following phenomenon? I don't know what the band would be today for that. But in one sense, what's happening over the course of this travel narrative is the kind of people who don't have enough responsibility so that they can follow someone, they're doing this. These are like, these are stragglers. These are kind of, this is a bizarre band of people that's following Jesus as he's teaching. This really is a weird fringe movement at this point. Um, in redemptive history. And the reason they're following him is really important, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, is because they are Jewish people who have been waiting for something to happen. And when they talk about waiting, they don't wait the way we wait, like you kind of waited to find out if you're going to get into Stanford, you waited to find out who your roommate was, you're waiting to decide a major, and you're, we're waiting in these kind of month-long or six-month-long or even year or four-year increments. They've been waiting, and they're very, it's very present in their mind that we've been waiting for over a thousand years. They have a much longer vision of what waiting feels like. And they have been waiting for all these promises that are articulated way back in Genesis 12 to their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham, that there is this God, and He said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a beautiful land, and you're going to be a blessing to the world. And God was supposed to do something through these Jewish people. And they've been waiting for this moment, and they've heard more promises. They heard God speak promises through Moses. They heard God speak promises through David, all these kind of things. And they're waiting. And they're waiting for that next stage of life when everything is finally made right. And so they saw this wandering teacher doing these weird things, and that kind of a bizarre group of people who would be attracted to a wandering teacher doing weird things are thinking, maybe this is the one. We've been waiting for messianic hope. Maybe Jesus is it. They were always waiting, and I think we are too, for the next chapter in life to save us. Uh, And Jesus is preparing them for the next moment in God's story of grace. And it is what they need. He's saying, you have been waiting, and something profound is about to happen before your eyes. But it's not necessarily what they expected, and it's not what we expected. And it's actually far better. So Jesus is speaking into our anticipation, and everybody in here, Christian or not, I'm firmly convinced, is anticipating. And you're applying your anticipation to all these little dreams and these little hopes, but we're all waiting for something. Maybe we don't even know how to put words to it. 
but we want this life to be different. We want to know there's a better story. Jesus speaks that parable into that sense of longing, that waiting, that anticipation we all have, and certainly his followers had then. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and, and said to them, engage in business until I come back. But his servants hated him, or sorry, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minus. And he said to him, and you are to be over the five cities, over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have at least collected, uh, might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, give it to the one who has the ten minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for this word. It has troubling things in it that troubles our soul. We don't know if we like it, but I pray as we explore it that you would speak, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak in the places we need to hear you, and that uh, we would find that there's something good here, there's something we need to hear. Be with us, dear God. Be with us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. So what does Jesus have to say to our anticipation? Uh, we all live lives of anticipation all moments, anticipating good things and bad things. What does he have to say? What, who will we find ourselves to be when we meet him? That's certainly one of the questions. And what will he think of us? And into this context, Jesus tells us this parable. And what he does when he starts this parable is he gives an example that they would actually be very well acquainted with. When he starts to tell this, tell this parable, this is a story they're familiar with because at that time... In ancient Near East, in Palestine, Israel, that area, local governors would go to the Caesar, to the emperor, and ask to be ratified as a regional king. So they're very familiar with this. We have historical record of Herod doing this, of Antipas doing this, of Archelaus doing this, people traveling from Palestine to the Caesar and asking for ratification to be king. And so he's speaking into that uh, story they well understand. And what would happen is when one of, like, for instance, when Archelaus actually went around like 4 BC to seek kingship, a party that opposed him would go with him. And they would make a case for why he shouldn't be king. And he actually didn't get it. And Antipas did. I think it was his brother or his brother-in-law. And so the first point Jesus is making, though, in this passage is this. is He's saying there's going to be a long trip. He is preparing them for the moment when Jesus leaves. Um, and he's saying, I'm about to leave, 
This is on the eve of his arrest and on the eve of the crucifixion. And he's preparing them, but he's also preparing us for life after Jesus' departure. And the first point of parable is this, and this is, a, this is a vital point for understanding Christianity. Whether you're a Christian or not, you need to know this. This is a constant theme throughout all of Scripture. And it's this. Um, Jesus' historical life, the, the event of the resurrection, it is the seal and the guarantee of His promises. All of those that are in Him by faith, that means you are forgiven, that you are adopted, and you are loved, and you are known, and you are assured. But the full expression and manifestation of enjoyment of those promises is not here yet. What Jesus is saying is there is a time of waiting. That we are a place in history where Jesus has come and done something powerful and profound in the first century that undeniably the entire globe is still wrestling with. Let's admit at least whether or not you're a Christian that the events of actually a wandering Jewish preacher with no significant lineage did something in the first century that the entire global population for the most part is actually still struggling with 2,000 years later. Let's at least concede that. But what you need to know as a Christian, is if, and if you're considering Christianity, is that one of the fundamental things that Jesus is saying is, I am going away, I'm doing something at this cross, and I'm doing something in the resurrection, and I am going away, and there will be a delay before the full expression of what I've done comes into our lives, before the full enjoyment of God's promises comes. And we all know that. Because if you are a Christian, if, if you've had faith in Jesus, you have found some sweet things to come into your life. You have found release from guilt. Because Jesus died for you at the cross. You have found hope in the resurrection. Even though it's not there yet, you look back and you see that He is the first fruits of the resurrection, that He's conquered death. And some good things have come into your life. But you also know this, just like I do from experience, there are still a lot of bad things in your life. And you're still wondering, maybe even like the Israelites, definitely after the resurrection of like, wasn't everything sad supposed to come untrue in this moment? Why is there still so much struggle? So we've experienced some good things, and yet we're frustrated because there's still so many bad things we're experiencing. We're still slogging through life. We're tearful. We're frustrated, and we're lonely. We still have to watch death. We still have to watch illness. We still have to deal with our broken souls. In some ways, what Jesus' is, his first point is this, and it's a silly illustration, but it makes my point. The death and resurrection of Jesus secured and adopted and forgave and restored his people to God. But the full enjoyment of that doesn't come until the resurrection, until the new heavens and the new earth, until Jesus returns. And the way I always think about it was when I was a little kid, a little spoiler alert tonight, some of y'all about to learn Santa Claus isn't real. When I was a little kid and I discovered the gift closet where my parents hid the gifts... I remember every Christmas going and peeking to see what they had bought me a week or two weeks or three weeks beforehand. And I knew, right, around Thanksgiving that I, this is the kind of things I got for Christmas, that I got a Super Nintendo, right? Do you all even aware of the Super Nintendo? Okay. They had purchased it. I actually enjoyed the fact that it was already purchased, even though I didn't have full access to it. It was still hidden away. And I lived in an in-between time knowing the Super Nintendo is mine, but it's not fully mine until Christmas Day. That's where we are actually in redemptive history. <laughs> We're in the in-between time. We all have Super Nintendos, but we can't play them yet. That's where we are in redemptive history. Jesus did, purchased your soul at the cross. And yet the full joy and expression of everything we receive in Him is still yet to come. 
And Jesus is telling us that. That's the first point He's making. And so we find ourselves still waiting and frustrated at times and still dealing with things. And here's the other thing I want you to know. The waiting is where God is at work. Because the next question we have is, well, then why? And this past Monday morning, I read Romans 5 with a couple of people in this room. And we read this passage that shows up several different ways and different times in Scripture where Paul said, we rejoice in our present sufferings. Because those sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And what Paul is doing is he is speaking into the frustration of this waiting time. And he's saying this time of waiting is not wasted. God is at work in it. And it's the most frustrating but true thing that we encounter. This is, the, this is why we're frustrated by it, and if you think about this very long, you know this is, you know this is true. We don't change or grow by the transmission of data. We change and grow, and God transforms us by sorting through trauma. We don't change and grow by the transmission of data, by learning all the right things. We actually change and grow in a deep and substantial way by actually sorting through trauma. And I can, I can, you can lay out a step-by-step guide of how do you forgive someone, right? We can all, we can all communicate the data. We can talk about the principles. You don't change and grow and begin to understand forgiveness until you get into the confusing, terrible trenches of actually doing business with someone trying to forgive. Right? The way one of my, one of my best friends said it is he says this, the maturing comes in the doing. And, and the way he talks about it is when you gather all the data and you get your ducks in a row and your game plan, then you're finally mature to go into the trenches. That's the way we view life, right? That's, that's how we've structured kind of our childhood and adolescence and college, right? Get all prepared, get all prepared, and then you're ready and capable for the trenches. And I'm not dismissing the importance of learning and preparation, but I'm telling you this as somebody who spends a ton of time trying to prepare people for marriage. One of Elizabeth's favorite things to do is premarital counseling. And we will talk... And hopefully we will with each of you get to talk marriage principles all day long with you. Here's what we know after doing premarital counseling for over 10 years now. Premarital counseling doesn't change anyone ever. (laughs) Premarital counseling doesn't change anyone ever. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We have other reasons for doing it. That's another conversation. Zero transformation happens in premarital counseling. It happens when you get into the messiness of marriage. That's when transformation happens. You don't get mature and then go into life. Life is where God matures you. Waiting in this time, in this suffering, because waiting is a form of suffering, is where God matures you. The frustrating, how do I manage loneliness? How do I deal with my roommate? How do I put sin to death? What do I do to respond to Jesus? How do I change? Why is this thing in my life now? Those processes are where God is at work. He's not waiting for you to sort through those processes so y'all can get back to the business of liking each other time. God is at work in those processes now. I, I know that doesn't make us happy. And that's okay. But it does tell us that Even our suffering is fruitful in God's economy. Paul is telling us that the way God grows His people into strong, substantial people of hope is through us sorting through the suffering and the waiting. And if there's one thing that the life and the suffering and the death of Jesus shows us is that suffering is where God does His most beautiful work in the world. There's a time for waiting. 
but the business of the kingdom of God is going on during that time. The time of waiting does not mean that it's vacation. The business of the master is still being conducted while he's gone. The next point in the parable is what are we to be do? What are we supposed to do during the waiting? The first thing to note is the master is distributing his wealth to all the servants so that they conduct his business while he's away. This is not him divesting his estate because he's never going to come back. This is him actually allocating his resources because his businesses need to continue to run while he's gone. So he's allocating resources to his servants. He's not giving away his wealth. He's, divest, he's um, investing in each servant a portion of his portfolio. And so the big question that we have and that is what do the minus represent? What does that mean God has given me? What am I supposed to do? Right? That's the question all of us are asking. And this pe- passage and its kind of parallel passage in Matthew, the parable, uh, the parable of the tenants, have been really mishandled by Westerners because we tend to think about it in our special, we're so special to ourselves Western way. And um, this is what we normally think is like, okay, these are these special abilities God's given me. Right? He's given me something special. He's given me the Stanford education. That's pretty special. It's the most special education right now. It's the hardest one to get into. Right? He's given me this great mind. Now, all these things are true. I'm not saying they're not true. But we tend to think, what are the talents God is giving me and He's saying I need to be efficient with? I have this great work ethic. I have this musical gift. I have this passion for non-profit. Uh, I have this, this wealth that I can accumulate or inherit or whatever it is. Okay, that's the way we tend to think and that's the way a lot of times this parable is interpreted. You've been given all these special abilities and God wants you to do something special with them. That has absolutely nothing to do with this parable. That's crazy and it has nothing to do with this parable. The, again, you've got to think about the original hearers. These are not Stanford students with special abilities. These are people who have nothing going on, so they're just following a popular teacher who's kind of bizarre and most people don't support. Do you get what kind of people he's speaking to? In fact, if anything, there were people that had special abilities that left them behind. Right? Some of the disciples had a profitable, pretty significant fishing business. They actually walked away from everything that was special about them and their special talents and their special abilities to be of Jesus. Matthew was, a, was functionally an IRS agent. He was a tax collector. He actually walked away from his wealth to be with Jesus. If anything, people are actually walking away from things that make them special and their ability and their talent and all that kind of stuff in order to be with Jesus. If anything, he's, might act, Jesus might actually be calling us away from all the things we think are special about ourselves. His, origi- his original audience, if nothing else, were people that had no special abilities. Jesus, in this parable, is not calling you to be great with your talent and your privilege. I don't... I, you do have talent and privilege. I'm not dismissing that. This parable is not about Jesus telling you to be great with your talent and your privilege. <laughs> He is calling, the master is calling his servants to conduct his business, to carry on his business. Jesus' business is the mission of God. Jesus' business is the gospel of grace. The only required special ability that makes you a candidate for carrying on his business is that you're a broken sinner in need of grace. That's what we bring to the table, that's our talent as it were. What is the business that Jesus had been in before their very eyes? 
all throughout Luke. He's been feeding hungry people. He's been healing sick people. He's been welcoming sinners. He's been forgiving people. He's been binding up broken bodies and broken hearts. He came to set captives free. Verse 10, right before this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's the Master's business. And you see, you don't have to have a Stanford education to do that. Stanford education is good, but that's why the parable has nothing to do with that. The only requirement to be a part of God's mission is that you're a sinner who needs His grace. The wealth of the master is his grace. What he has given his servants is his grace. What he has given his servants to go and invest in the world and to get return on is the grace of God. The business of God's people is the offering of the gospel of grace. This is what the Lord offers you. This is his family business. And this means that Christianity, and this means the church, and this means RUF, is not just a place to consume. It's also a place to give to one another and a place to go out from and to serve beyond these borders. What does that mean for us? First of all is this. We need to know what the master's business model is. And the business model for Jesus is death and resurrection. Jesus came into the world not in order to lay burdens on people, but to take burdens off. That when our sin and our shame weigh us down, He comes and takes it on Himself. When our unacceptability and our fear drive us down, He comes and He takes it on Himself. He comes and dies so that we can live. That's His business model, is dying so that others can live. The business model is death in Christ so that those who are dying can live. This means His people are actually conducting the same business model. That we're doing what Paul says when he says in Philippians 2 that I poured out like a drink offering so that you could have faith. Paul goes and suffers in ministry so the church at Philippi can experience the life of Jesus. This means that the person in your hall or the person in your house that's difficult, that's struggling, that's hard to deal with because of how deep and dark their place in life is. And it's going to feel, this is what it's going to feel like for you to go help someone in need. It's going to feel like death. You're going to die to all the things actually you're seeking life in, right? It's going to cost you some, some study time. It's going to cost you some social life. You're going to have to give up things. It's going to feel like death so that you can bring life to them. That's the business model. Death for you so they can have life. So Jesus' business model you is death in his life so that you can live. When you go into places of pain, in places of loneliness, in places broken by sin, when you go into people's physical needs and emotional needs, when you do it, it will be a disaster for you. It will cost you dearly and you're going to begin to feel the death of the situation. Death is going to leak out on you so that your friend, your parent, even a stranger can have a little bit of life. Forgiveness feels like death. Right? It feels like death because you're absorbing evil done to you so that even the perpetrator can have life. So they can be released. Right? This means you speak the love and mercy of Jesus into the world. Into the lives of people around us. Into the lives because we're all begging for it. You speak love and mercy of Jesus to Christians and to non-Christians. 
And you know what speaking the grace of God to others feels like? It feels like death. The reason it feels like death is because it means you're letting go of all pretense and all of the things you think great about yourself and saying to someone, I have nothing to boast in of myself. I just have the love of God in Christ. That will feel like death so they can have life. You're offering them life and you've got to let go of yourself in order to do that. If you want to know if you're using Jesus' business model, it's going to feel like death in your life so that others can live. And Jesus is saying, I will know my people because they will respond to my grace by becoming my grace to the world. Jesus calls all of his people to be ministers. And every moment of every day is a chance to respond to and share the love of Christ. That's the family business. So that's his business model. But we also... there's good news, even though the business model is weighty to consider, there's joy in it. The king returns. And when he returns, he seeks out, he wants to know, what have my my servants done? How have they performed in business? And what does he do? There are incredible details right here. When he finds out the first servant took one mina and turned it into ten... First of all, he doesn't congratulate him for successfulness. He congratulates him for faithfulness, which is interesting. But look how he responds. He honors and rewards him with more responsibility. He doesn't give him wealth. He gives him responsibility, right? He gives him ten cities. He gives him more of the family business to do. I gave you charge over... One minus is about three months of salary, three or four months of salary. I gave you fifteen or $20,000. Now I'm giving you charge over ten cities. This is ridiculous generosity. This is not proportionate. It's excessive. He actually says, you are faithful with a little. And he gives them ten cities. Part of what Jesus is saying a little bit right here is that in the kingdom of God, reward and responsibility aren't necessarily very far apart. In fact, there might be a lot of overlap. Maybe you don't just receive grace, but you also go an act of grace. And when you do, when you go and out into the world offering the grace of God, you experience His grace more richly and more fully. The more you conduct the king's business, the fuller experience you will get of the king's love and favor. It will become richer to you. The more you come to Jesus asking for grace so that you can be grace to others, the richer your experience of grace is going to be. Think about it this way. This is kind of simple. You get a whole lot more water flowing through a pipe than you can filling up a bucket. Right? I I like to lift. The way you lift more weight... It's about lifting more weight. You get stronger. The more you go out into the world sowing the gospel, the richer the love of God will become to you. For many of us, the reason for many of us Christians, the reason our experience of the sweetness and the joy of the gospel is really thin, and we're not even sure if it makes us happy or we even care very much about it. The reason why is because we're not using it in the world. We're consumed with ourselves and our stuff and our dreams and our nightmares and we are consumers of grace, but we're not stewards of grace. There is not grace overflowing in our lives out into others. If you go into the dark places of this world, you will find yourself praying more, 
You'll find yourself worshiping more. You'll find yourself reading scripture. You'll find yourself finding time with Jesus, resting, singing more, wanting to be with God's people more. All the, ac- all the activities of actually celebrating and accessing God's grace because you need it and you will be far richer for it. The reason that so many Christians feel so poor in the kingdom of God is not because there's not a wealth of grace in God. It's because you're not doing anything that demands you to access a lot of it. You're not doing anything that pushes you to run to God and ask for more. So the family business is difficult. It is death and resurrection. There is great joy in it. The first two servants enjoy the reward of more grace. More grace to give. But the third man is our warning in this passage. And what's interesting about this passage is that sometimes people use it to make people afraid. Right? To provoke fear in people's hearts. God's going to get you if you don't do enough ministry. What's the reason that the third man gives for not doing anything? I was afraid. I knew you were a severe man and that you demanded more and you should. What happens in the verses right before this? Something very stark happens in the verses right before this. Here he is saying, I was afraid because I know you're severe and I know you're an exacting, punishing man. The verses right before this, we see the master give 10 cities to someone he entrusted with $15,000. Cities, not, not more money, not a gold watch, not a raise. It, He gave 10 cities, he gave the position of regional governor to someone that was currently the night manager at a 7-Eleven. We saw the generosity of God. The profound, disproportionate generosity of God. And here he is saying, I know you're a severe man, and I know you're exacting. The third man is stuck, and the reason that he is unable to labor in the kingdom of God is because he failed to see the heart of the master on display right in front of him. What paralyzed him is not that he didn't work hard enough, it's not that he didn't have a good plan, it wasn't that he wasn't a good manager. What paralyzed him was that he was suspicious of the goodness of the master. This is absolutely a parable about judgment. And about the return of the king. About the end of waiting. That there will be a final accounting of faithfulness. And the man who thinks the master is hard and he demands too much, more than he should have, I'm afraid of him, that's the one that gets judged. And we think judgment passages are here to invoke fear in order to get you busy acting like a Christian. And Jesus is saying, precisely because you thought I was hard, it paralyzed you. Precisely because you thought I was demanding, it paralyzed you. You thought I asked too much, and it paralyzed you. Because you were so afraid of me, you were paralyzed, and you were, not, you were not willing to believe and to rest and even to labor in my grace. You thought I'm out to get you, and I was always out to bless you. Can't you see how I dealt with my other servants? This is the irony. God is only severe with the people who expect Him to be severe. And all he is doing at every moment right now, tonight, with your eyes and your ears and your nose open, as his creation is invading all of your senses with colors and with food and with Jason's tea that he's bringing, with the stars, with Jesus, with healing, with the forgiveness of the cross, he is making all things new 
In the resurrection, he is trying to scream in all of these things the graciousness and the goodness of God. From those tiny little things like the color green all the way to the resurrection. God is saying, how can you doubt my goodness? What, what else can I do? The barrier to serving the world as a servant of Jesus is not lack of effort and it's not lack of discipline. It's not even lack of knowledge, not knowing what to do. It is doubting the goodness of God. God is calling you into His mission. If you identify as a Christian, if you are saying, I'm in Christ, this is my thing, this is what I understand reality to be, God is calling you into His mission, every one of you. He has spoken the story of Jesus to you, the grace of God and the cross of Christ, the love of God, the hope of the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth, all things made new again, all received by grace. And He is saying, I will know that you are mine by what you do with that grace. And maybe some of y'all are trembling, like all of us are prone to at times, because you feel as though you've played the Christian game. You've played at it. You know the general stories. You can, you can spit out the words, and you've wrapped up your Christianity, and you've put it in your closet, and you went back to the business of building your kingdom and not His. And, and if you have to do business with Jesus or God one day, you kind of have your Christian card punched. You can pull it out of your closet and say, here it is. I, did, I got Christianity. I, I prayed the prayer. I can articulate the gospel generically. And yet you still feel afraid. Because that's all you've done. And what you feel like is you're not sure if God is good. You're suspicious of His goodness. And you're worried that He's severe. And you're worried that He's going to ask you more than He's allowed to. Which is the heart of the third man. And you know what we do when we're afraid of God? And we're not, when we're suspicious of His goodness, we hedge our bets. We get our Christian card punched. We put it away in case we have to access it one day. And then we go about building our own kingdoms. And this is the heart of sin. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Their sin was that they were suspicious of God's goodness. They thought, maybe I can seek happiness through a better method than God's told me. I'm not sure He has the best in store for me. So we've registered as a Christian, we've got our card, we've filed away in case we find out that God is good, but we never engage in the family business. And this parable is a warning. It's a warning to us when we suspect the goodness of God. And He's screaming at us in this parable, and especially in the terrifying imagery of verse seven, of 27, right? And what God is saying is, if you don't want any part in my goodness, I will not force you to enjoy it. People opposed his kingdom. They didn't want him to ascend the throne. And what he says at the end is, they didn't want to be in my kingdom, so I'm not going to require them to be in my kingdom. They didn't want any part of my goodness, so I'm not going to require them to enjoy my goodness. If you want no part of the good and gracious reign of God in Christ, he will not force you to partake of his goodness. Verse 27 is terrifying. It, is un- it makes our souls tremble. It makes my soul tremble. I worried about reading it and talking about it. But it confirms what the clear and consistent record of Scripture, what Moses and the prophets and Jesus and Paul all confirm, which is this. God is a God of judgment. And in, in RUF, I hope one of the things we do for you all the time is we deal with all of Scripture, even the things that trouble us. We don't soft-pedal things or custom-fit Scripture to our sensibilities. But I want to close with this. 
Could you believe that God was good if He wasn't angered at evil? Could you believe that God was good if He wasn't angered at evil? So just because it troubles our souls, and it does, to read verse 27, that doesn't mean it just can't be true. In fact, it's very much the opposite. If there is any God, the one thing that He has to be, if He is good at all, is a God that opposes evil. If he, the, first thing, the, first, the first thing that has to be true if he's good, is that he opposes evil. If he's good at all, he has to fight evil and he has to hate evil. He has to hate the things that have gashed and torn up our souls and our bodies and our families and our relationships. I hope that you would waste no time exploring or praising a God that doesn't oppose evil. Don't waste your time exploring or trying to praise a God that doesn't oppose evil. The question then is, what does he do about it? And you have to remember where Jesus is in the story. This is the last parable before he's arrested. This is the last parable before he goes to the cross, before he offers himself as a sacrifice for the evil that we brought into this world. Sparing us the wrath of God by enduring it on our behalf, our substitute and our atonement, the high point of his grace. And his judgment now is only reserved for those who look at the supreme expression of grace and love and goodness and say, I don't believe you're good. I don't submit to that kind of master and I refuse to be a part of that kind of kingdom. His judgment is only reserved for people who look at the loving sacrifice of Jesus and say, I don't want to be a part of a kingdom that's about that kind of goodness and that kind of grace and that kind of love. And that's the question before us now is whose kingdom is good enough to be worthy of investing all of your labors in? Is it your you-centric kingdom waiting for that mini corner, that, that tiny place in life, that next moment where maybe finally you'll get your kingdom in order and everything will be happy and you'll achieve salvation, right? You'll realize all your dreams and you'll, you know it's going to happen too. You're going to find yourself waiting again. Is that the kingdom worth investing all of your labors and all of your life in or the kingdom of God in Jesus knowing that there is a wait but there will be a return. There is work to do but it is good work and it will fill you up and it is lasting work. It is the work of showing grace. That's worthwhile work. That's the business of the master. Let's pray.